Today's scripture reading will come from Joshua chapters 5 and 6 and Hebrews 11. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. The word of the Lord. Well, due to the time, we are going to go ahead and jump right in. Um, If you're uh, new new with us today, we'd like to welcome you. We hope that you feel uh, welcome worshiping with us today. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are in the middle of a series in Hebrews 11 called The Hero Story. And uh, today our passage brings us to the story of Joshua and Rahab. It's actually a reminder that uh, God works in mysterious ways. He's not a respecter of persons because you have these two verses right next to each other of Joshua, who's the mighty warrior who leads Israel into the promised land and defeats all their enemies. So we can easily imagine why he's included in the hall of faith. But then you have Rahab in the very next verse, a Gentile prostitute. She's commended for her faith just the same. What's she doing there? What's what's the author of Hebrews trying to tell us? What's God showing us about faith to these two completely opposite individuals that are brought into his purposes and plans all the same? So we pick up the story this week. In the story of faith, we pick up the story right after the first generation of Israel had left Egypt. And they go into the wilderness and they forget. That first generation forgets that all that God had done and they continue to not trust God in their circumstances and they just continue to live this story that started off so hopeful and purposeful and meaningful. 
but it ends in tragedy, and they all die in the wilderness on the other side of the Jordan, in the wilderness. But now, pick up the story where Joshua has now succeeded Moses, and the second generation is being led into the promised land after all these, all these decades, all these years. They finally get to the promised land, they cross the Jordan, and they're there. There's a problem. There's a big problem. There's giants in the land. Big giants. There's these incredible armies and fortresses with their massive walls. Israel's going to have to fight their way in. And as soon as they enter the promised land, God points to the biggest fortress out of all of them. He points to Jericho, and he says, I want you to take it. I want you to take the biggest and the baddest first. And you have to think, you know, after all this time, Israel, they finally get into the promised land. I have to just be thinking, really? We've wandered all this time, and now that we get here, we have to fight our way through? Can't we just slide right around Jericho and find a nice little space to set up shop? We can finally rest. We don't have to fight our way through, and we can just keep our heads down, find a nice little hobbit hole for even adventures. That'd be a lot easier. It'd be a lot better. But the point is, is that it's not what God has in mind for His people, because can you really have peace when you're surrounded by your enemies? Can you really have peace when you're surrounded by people that want to destroy you and kill you? It's a question we have to ask. And we often think of peace or freedom as just kind of this agreed tension. The Cuban Missile Crisis. So I'll point my missiles at you, you point them at me, and we'll just kind of be in this tension. And we'll agree to live there. I'll do your, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, and we'll leave each other alone. But is that really peace? Is that really peace? It's not the freedom that God wants for His people. He wants something better for them, and He's showing His people that true peace will only be found when they're completely, utterly, and unequivocally devoted to His purposes and His purposes alone. And why is that? Why is He such a jealous God? Well, let's look at Joshua chapter 5, just before the battle of Jericho. At the very end of the chapter, Joshua goes up by himself to, to see the city. He goes to see it for himself, perhaps to scope it out, to see this massive fortress that the spies came back and told him about. But he some crosses his path. He sees a man standing in his way with a sword drawn. He sees a man ready for battle. He sees a man ready to fight. So, of course, Joshua asks, are you for us, or are you for our enemies? Whose side are you on? The man simply replies, no. I'm the commander of the armies of the Lord, and I have come. That's a funny question. Whose side are you on? No. No. That's a funny answer. You want broccoli, you want asparagus? No. It's like, didn't really seem to answer the question, or does it? It's actually quite profound. What's, what's this commander of the armies of the Lord implying here? Joshua asks him, whose side are you on? And the man says, no. Wrong question. That's an entirely wrong question. Just like Moses, when God comes to him and he says, I'm sending you, and he says, who am I? God says, no, that's the wrong question. Who am I? It's the same thing with Joshua at his version of the burning bush. Who side are you on? No. Wrong question. 
It's not about whether I'm on your side or your enemies. It's about whether or not you are on my side. Entirely different question and an entirely different outcome. Ask yourself the question, are you on my side? I do not fit into your categories of your purposes or enemies' purposes. I have my own entirely. Joshua responds in the correct way. He says, well, what would you have me do? Lord, what would you have your servant do? And he bows down and worships him. But before this commander of the armies of the Lord, this very odd presence of God standing before Joshua, he doesn't give him the battle plan immediately and say, well, this is what you're going to do in Jericho. He actually says, no, I want you to stop. I want you to take your shoes off because you're on holy ground. I want you to see my holiness. I want you to learn a little bit about me and who I am before we start talking about Jericho. That will come in time. And just like Moses, just before God sends Joshua into battle, he's offered to experience and learn about who this holy God is. But what exactly is holiness? We don't use that word a lot. It's usually a word we just come across when we read the Bible. It's not part of our... You probably haven't used that word this week at all. But what is it? The Bible talks about it all the time. It's important for us to understand, because if we don't, then we're going to pass by the whole point of this entire story. God invites Joshua to see his holiness. When God says he's holy, what he's describing, maybe do a little heavy lifting for a second, what he's describing when God says he's holy is he's saying that I am completely other. I am other in every possible category, in every possible way. I am other. What does that mean? Well, it means that he's completely and utterly separate. He is in a class all his own. And it's not even close. He's completely other than anything you could possibly imagine. And we fall short of describing God if we use classifications that come from our finite understanding or the way that we see the world. So think about it this way. You fill out a questionnaire at the doctor's office asking you all these sorts of questions about who you are, male, female, race, ethnicity, income, all these different things. And you check the boxes. But in every possible category that you could think of, God checks the box, none of the above. None of the above. He's not classifiable in everything. Power, might, strength, ability. You cannot possibly comprehend it. You cannot possibly comprehend the full scope of who God is because He's completely separate. And anything that you would compare with Him will fall short in every possible category. That's not an idea to comprehend. That's something that we're supposed to respond to. So think about it this way. Think about it through the... uh, Maybe to make it a little more realistic through the Old Testament prophet Larry Bird of the Boston Celtics. I watched a uh, documentary a long time ago. I remember this funny story of this guy doing a documentary on Larry Bird. And Larry Bird was actually, you might not know this, but he was a legendary trash talker. Legendary. Well, just chew you up one side of the court and down the other. But the thing is, is he was good. And they were talking to this one guy... I don't even know who he was, just a, a kind of an NBA player that had a story to tell of his experience with Larry Bird. 
when he played him in one of his first games, his rookie season was actually against the Celtics, and he had to cover, he had to guard Larry Bird the whole game. It was a close game. It came down to just a couple of seconds left in overtime. And uh, he'd been guarding Larry Bird the whole game. And uh, the Celtics had the final possession with just a couple seconds left. They get the ball across half court. They call timeout. And this guy said, Larry Bird walked over to me and he said, Hey, rookie, come here. So he walks over to him. <laughs> and Larry Bird said, After this timeout, they're going to inbound the ball to me right there. I'm going to turn, shoot it in your face, and I'm going to make it. He's pretty confident. And so the interviewer said, well, what did he do? He said, well, they inbounded the ball to him right where he said he did. He turned the ball, shot it in my face, and he made it. <laughs> they won. And the guy just shook his head and just laughed. What's that guy experiencing in that moment? In a way, he's experiencing Larry Bird's holiness. Now, let me explain that. You're probably like, Zach's a big fan of Larry Bird. What I mean is, is he has a response when he sees greatness like that. He says, that's something completely different than me. That's something in a completely other category. That is no normal basketball player. He's in a class all his own. He does exactly what he says he's going to do. That's wild. And that's holiness. That's what we're supposed to respond like when we think about God, not just to think of it as an attribute. It's something that we respond to. Because the book of Leviticus talks about holiness all the time. And it says that we, and it tells how we are supposed to be holy. Because God calls His people to be holy. Throughout the entire book, God says, I have made you a separate people. I have made you an other people in every possible category. Therefore, be holy as I am holy. But the odd thing is that he also says your dishes are holy, your livestock is holy, your house is holy, your home is holy, your, your doors are holy, your marriage is holy. So if all of these objects are holy, what's it teaching us about our holiness? The problem is we often think of holiness in terms of morality. Just do the right things, holy roller, somebody that's holier than thou, that does the right things a goody two-shoes. But holiness is not fully defined in terms of morality. That's an aspect of holiness, but the Bible gives a far bigger picture. Because when Leviticus talks about what the opposite of holiness is, it doesn't talk about immorality and sin. The opposite of holiness is something that's common. The opposite of holiness is commonness, ordinariness, mundaneness, Something regular and unspecial. So what makes you holy is this. It's that you are everything you have, everything you own, is exclusively and undividedly devoted to the service of the Lord. And He just does not tolerate using what we have and what we are for anybody else or anything else. The call to be holy as God is holy is to be singularly devoted to His purpose because He is an uncommon God. He's an uncommon God. So how foolish would it have been for Joshua to say, are you for us or for our enemies? No, I'm the commander of the armies of the Lord. <laughs> Great. All right, God. Here's the battle plan. Here's what I think we should do. Let's do this. 
He doesn't. Instead, he falls flat on his face and he asks the best possible question. What would you have your servant do? And God says, now that is a good question. It's a great question. And then, as he offers Joshua the opportunity to come and worship, he then tells him how they will defeat Jericho in the most uncommon of ways. He tells him how to defeat this powerful fortress by having Israel march around the city for seven days in pure silence. And then they're going to walk around it six days in a row once, and then on the seventh day they'll march around it seven times, and then the last time the priests will shout, or the priests will, priests will blow their trumpets, the people will shout, and then all the walls are going to fall down. It's pretty uncommon. I'd imagine Joshua might laugh at such a battle plan unless he understood the uncommonness of who it was that was giving him the plan in the first place. God will not take the promised land in ordinary ways. And Joshua says, okay, I trust that you are going to do exactly what you say you're going to do. And by faith, he does that, does exactly what God asks him, he trusts that God's going to do what He says He's going to do, and that's exactly what Joshua saw in all of Israel, is that God did exactly what He said He was going to do. And just like before, in all the stories that we've looked at with Israel and before, all of these moments in time where God flexes His power and might and shows His purposes and plans, it'd be so nice if the stories ended there. It'd be so nice if Israel would respond to this holy and magnificent God that is other in every possible category, yet still invites them into His purposes. It'd be so amazing if they said over and over, God, what would you have your servants do? Oh, what they would have seen. But they don't. They don't. They forget. Just like their first parents. In the very next chapter, in Joshua 7, it says that the people broke faith. They broke their faith. They went in another direction, and they began to hoard things that God said were devoted to destruction. They went against His explicit command, you do not take anything out of any of the cities that I have devoted to destruction. He made it explicitly clear. But why does He do that? It certainly was common in that day to do that to take everything that you destroyed the city, so take it and use it for your own personal gain. But God didn't want Israel to become a people that were just clamoring over who can get what. Instead of focusing on the battle plan ahead of them, they just worry about trying to get new stuff and their arms are full going back to the camp of Israel. Worried about their own profit, their own gain, their own personal self-preservation rather than being singularly focused on His plans and purposes. He has an uncommon way of going about it. He says, I do not want anything to fight for your devotion, so take all of it and destroy it. All of it. He wanted Israel to trust that he would give them everything that they needed, when they needed it, how they needed it. He was teaching Israel how to trust how to live a new life of faith. And all they had to do was be obedient and devoted to His purposes. But then we come across Achan. What does Achan do? Well, he 
after the battle at Ai, he decides that he sees a couple things that he likes, and so he takes them, hides them, takes them back, takes them back to his camp. And when he's found out that he disobeyed God, they came and they asked him what he had done, and he says, I saw a beautiful cloak and a little bit of spare change, some gold and silver, and I, I took it. I took it and I disobeyed God. And it required Achan, his life. That is hard reality. He does not share his purpose with any other purposes that we want to adopt for ourselves. Achan didn't like the answer to the question, Lord, what would you have your servant do? And it, you know, it says that he doesn't break faith by saying, you know, I don't believe in God anymore. I'm going to go the route of atheism and just leave my faith behind. No, it says that he broke faith because he was disobedient. And all those little ways that we break faith and trust and hope in God and His promises by sinning and turning to something else is breaking the faith. And all those little circumstances that we forget God and His promises, we break the faith just as much. And we break the faith because in the end, we don't really think it's a big deal to try and blend God's purposes with our own. And that's a dangerous, dangerous assumption. It cost Achan his life because he did not like the answer to the question, Lord, what would you have me do? Achan had no other purpose in mind. And the thing is, it's so crazy. How could, once again, how could Achan turn away from a God that had just done all that he had done before? This holy and awesome and powerful God. This God that parts the Red Seas, that makes the walls of Jericho fall down. The God that systematically breaks down every god of Egypt. Shows them how pitiful they are, and then he shows his power, and they still turn away. How could he turn away from that? How could we turn away from that? It reminds us, this story reminds us, that we have a far bigger enemy that needs to be conquered than the Canaanites. Far bigger enemy than ISIS. Far bigger enemy than any other religion or worldview. It reminds us that we have an enemy that lies behind far bigger walls than Jericho. It lies behind the walls of our hearts. It's the sin that sets up shop in your heart and constantly tries to persuade you that pursuing God's purposes really isn't worth it. Constantly tries to convince you that you can embrace God's promises, but you don't really have to devote yourself to His purposes. You can take what you like. Reject what you don't like. You can still do whatever it is that you want to do and God will forgive you. It tries to convince you that a common life is better than one that's set apart for God and His purposes. It tries to convince you that you can find an equal joy and satisfaction and identity in something else. And we all have to ask that same question just like Joshua did, the same question Achan did. We all ask the question of God, are you for me or are you for my enemies? We ask it all the time. We always confront God with our agenda. Week in, week out. We always say, you know, God, are you for me or are you for my enemies? God, are you for me? Are you for giving me the job that I want or are you not? Are you for giving me the career that I want or are you not? Are you for making the situation work out how I want or are you not? Are you for my children's success or are you not? We always bring our agenda to God and we ask Him, are you for me or for our enemies. We often come to God trying to blend our agenda and His agenda together. 
because we live under this idea that they can coexist. See, we love the fact that Jesus gives us eternal reward. It's just that I want control over my money. We love the fact that Jesus offers us freedom from sin. But I don't really want to fight all the impatience, anger, lust, dissatisfaction in my life. We love that Jesus offers us eternal life. We just want to control our life now. And the reality is that we often accept God's promises, but we don't accept His purposes. Which means in the end, what we're saying is we're not coming to a holy God and understanding what He wants. We come to God and we say, Jesus, come into my life. Meet me in my suffering. Deliver me from my enemies. Answer my prayers. But just know that I don't want you as master of my life. I still want to be able to control it. And I want you to be okay with that. There's a lady named Barbara Boyd that has a great way of thinking about this. She was a lecturer a long time ago on the holiness of God. And she uses this example. She says, imagine that the distance between the sun and the earth is essentially the thickness of a piece of paper. Okay? Distance between the sun and the earth. She said, the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet tall. And then she said, the distance just from our galaxy alone would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And that's one galaxy out of an infinitely large, incalculable number of stars and galaxies that are out there. And Hebrews chapter 1 says that he upholds all of it by the word of his power. There's not a single star that's out there that he hasn't created, hasn't given its purpose. He's the one who rides on the clouds of heaven. And he upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. It exists and does exactly what it's supposed to because he told it to. It works exactly as it does because he said so. Now ask yourself this question. Does that sound like a God that's going to be satisfied by coming into your life and just being your assistant? Is that the type of God that really is holy if He just wants to be your assistant? The holy life is lived by constantly learning over and over and over in every situation, every circumstances, to behold Jesus and say, I don't want a common life. I want one completely devoted to your purposes. What would you have your servant do? I think when we understand that's the proper response of holiness, we're ready to understand that question of why is Rahab here? Why is Rahab the prostitute included in the great hall of faith? Well, in Joshua chapter 2, Joshua wanted to scope out the city, so he sends two spies into Jericho to see what they're up against. But the spies end up getting found out, and they have to hide, and they find themselves in the house of Rahab. They find themselves in her house, and the king brings this common woman before him, and and he asks, do you know about these Israelites? She says, "Um, no, they've, they've already escaped and left the city. I didn't know who they were. Leave now and you might be able to overtake them. But in reality, she actually hid them on her roof, back at her house. 
And when she returns to the two spies, she says the most extraordinary thing in her confession. I'm going to read all of it. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that you, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. We heard what you did when, we heard what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon, Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on earth below. I only ask that you and your God have mercy on me. Do you understand how profound her confession was? She was a better Israelite than Israel was being Israelites. She never even saw any of that happen, but when she heard about it, she believed. And she trusted in this holy God that quarters no enemies. You either are for Him or you're against Him. There's no middle ground. And she responds in faith. And you hear in her confession that she sees how holy and powerful Israel's God is. She's saying, your God is no common God. He's the God of heaven above and earth below. I will put myself in harm's way for this God because He is the true God. And the only response I can give is to fight for His purposes and trust in His mercy. Rahab was willing to leave her old life behind and trust in whatever life this God, this holy God, would give her. She's asking the question, if I put my life in your hands, are you merciful? Are you good? Are you trustworthy? Isn't that so hard to do? It's so hard to see Jesus so separate from us. It's so hard for us to see how He affects our lives, how He affects the sin in our lives. It's so hard to see that He is a powerful and wonderful Savior. It's hard because we see His holiness like it's an invading army that wants to come in and take things from us. And so we we come here week after week, hearing what Jesus wants and requires of us. And it's so hard for us to give give Him those things. And every week we come with that same question and we live with that same giving God that same ultimatum, are you for me or for my enemies? And God says, no. Don't you want me to have this job or don't you? No. You want me to have this house or don't you? No. Do you want this situation to work out for me like I want or not? No. No, 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 no. I want you to serve me and trust me no matter what. I want you to learn to live an uncommon life because I've separated you for my purposes. But you have to trust me. You have to trust that the rest of the world trusts in their own plans and wants a Santa Claus, but I want you to trust in mine because you have a truly unbelievably holy God that wants to invite you into what He's doing. And the truth is, we, we struggle to learn to live that life that's dependent upon God because it feels so threatening. When you really try to struggle with your sin or difficult situations, you begin to doubt and you trust in God's faithfulness. You begin to trust in His goodness. We struggle between a life that's common and a life that's uncommon because we always feel the threat of a holy God's agenda on our own and we don't like it. I don't like it. 
We always say things like, you're robbing me, you want to take things from me, you're stealing from me, you're always putting me in situations where I feel powerless, you never want good things from me, you're always stealing, you don't want me to experience joy and happiness. I don't trust that you're a good God. I don't trust that you're merciful. I don't trust that you actually care about me at all. You're just a holy God that does whatever He wants. There's a one of my favorite scenes in The Lord of the Rings is whenever Bilbo comes back from his birthday celebration and he puts the ring on and he escapes to his to his hobbit hole and he's getting ready to leave. Gandalf sees that something's up and so he comes in and he comes in and he wants he wants uh, Bilbo to give him the ring. He says, "Give me the ring." He says, "No." Gandalf says. Is, it, is that so hard to give me the ring? And Bilbo says, yes. Or he says, no, it's not. But yes, it is. He begins to look at the ring, and he says, you want it for yourself. He begins to say, you want it for yourself. You don't want anything good from me. You're trying to take it from me. You're trying to rob me of something that's the most precious thing to me. And he accuses Gandalf and Gandalf and all of his holiness There's a rushing wind that comes in and blows Bilbo back up against the wall and the room darkens and Gandalf's voice just lowers and gets deep. And he says, Bilbo Baggins, do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. I am not trying to rob you. And then the room lightens back up and he kneels down and he gets a smile on his face and he says, I'm trying to help you. And Bilbo sees Gandalf in all of his power and he runs up to Gandalf and he hugs him and embraces him. And Gandalf says, that's more like it. You trusted me once. Now trust me again. Trust me one more time. And that's the difficult thing of faith is that when God requires everything of us, we have to ask the question, is God the type of God that puts His money where His mouth is? Does He do what He says He's going to do? When we choose to devote our lives to Him completely, is it really actually worth it? Well, what happened to Rahab? How'd her story turn out? Well, she trusted in God. And whenever they took Jericho, they spared her and her entire family, and they brought Rahab into the company of Israel. She continued to live all of her days in Israel, but not, it's not just that simple. It was something far more that God had in bringing her into His purposes. He takes this common woman who is a prostitute, and He shows His tenderness and His love, and He gives her a husband. He gives her a husband. This woman that's torn and worn out in her tired body, who could possibly love me? And God says, I'm going to give you a man named Salmon. And he's going to love you. And you're going to have a little boy named Boaz. And then Boaz is going to have a little boy named Obed. Obed is going to have a little boy named Jesse. Jesse's going to have a little boy named David. And you're going to have a little boy named Jesus. Find a better story than that. Search far and wide. That is an uncommon story. 
You have a God that takes this common woman and He says, I'm going to give you a new life. Trust me. It is so unbelievably wonderful. I'm going to give you a man that's not going to hide from you in shame and pay you with money. He's going to pay you with His love. I'm going to give you a man that finds you beautiful. That adores you. Because I am the God that takes what's common and I make it precious. I make it beautiful for my purposes. And Jesus Christ will call you grandma. That's unbelievably fascinating. That's unbelievably uncommon. Because we have an uncommon God. And how could we turn away from such a God like that? This is why the author of Hebrews says over and over and over to run to Jesus. He's opened up the way to give you access to the Holy of Holies. You have no barriers in front of you. It's an invitation that when you're tempted and tested to grab to material things and to the things of this world, it's an opportunity and an invitation to run to that holy ground and be reminded of the holy God that you serve, that you were called for His purposes and His purposes alone. And that He's not just holy in power. He's not just holy in might and strength. He's holy and completely other in His love and His gentleness and in His care for you. The truth is, Jesus' love is unbelievably incomprehensible. And the book of Hebrews invites you to share in all of God's purposes in your marriage in India in every single aspect because of joy. All of it. Joy. It still comes back to the hope, the hope that Jesus had before Him. He endured all of His suffering, all of His pain because of the joy that was set before Him. And that's an invitation to have a joy that is actually uncommon and unlike anything you could ever experience. I emailed Pastor Isaiah this week and asked him about a lady that, um, asked him about a lady we ran across in our last trip. We went to this church where we dedicated this church um, that we had built. We, con- we were a part of the consecration service. And there was, it was Pastor Eliah who had actually um, founded this church and preached to this village. And we asked him after the consecration service if he'd give us this small tour of the village and tell, him, tell us his story in this village. And he, and he started, he's just beaming from ear to ear with this unbelievably huge smile. And he was so proud. And he starts telling this story. And he says, it took six years of preaching in this city or in this village before I had my first convert. And I was beaten for six years every time I came. And they'd run me off and they'd threaten me and a few times I had to run from my life over and over and over again. And then he says, this woman's house right here, she would actually take me in whenever I would run from those who were trying to hurt me. She would hide, she would hide me in her house. And there I would tell her about Jesus. And then when it got dark, I'd leave her house and I'd work my way back home. And then the, he went and got this woman and she came out and she said, she told us her story. And she said, I want to know this Jesus. She says, I, knew, I know I do not have much time left, but she says, I want to die with Jesus. 
and I want to be baptized. But it's hard over there to be baptized. You really have to mean it. So I checked up on this woman this week. She was baptized in March because she wants to die with Jesus. And when we left that village after the end of the day, something that stuck with me ever since then, and it will always stick with me. As we were leaving, we were saying goodbye to all the pastors, and finally I got to Pastor Eliah at the very end. I got to him at the very end, and I looked at him, and right when I got to his face, had so much joy on it, and tears were streaming down his face, that it, I was taken aback. And I remember, I have never experienced any joy like that. What kind of God gives joy that's so worth it that I will be beat for six years before having my first convert and at the end of it to have that much joy? Gosh, I would love to know that kind of joy. But it only comes with undivided devotion. An undivided heart. You have to recognize that maybe today if you want that, you want that type of joy, you have to understand and take very seriously that Jesus has no other agenda for you other than His. But it's because He wants something better for you. He doesn't want you to live a common life and you experience that. Maybe you feel like you've been living with far too many other agendas in your marriage and your job and your work and your finances, all of that, and you feel that tension but it's gotten you nowhere. And you'd like to begin to experience the type of joy that comes from the new life that God gives. You want to know that uncommon joy? You have to recognize that Jesus does not want to share space in your heart. He wants to give you that joy that sustains you in every circumstance and is better than any beautiful cloak or pocket full of change that this world has to offer. There's a type of joy that only comes from being completely devoted to Him. I would challenge you this week to ask yourself the question, to recognize that all of that, that new life starts with asking the question, Lord, what would you have your servant do? And Jesus will say, that's a good question. Now you're ready to know the uncommon God. Let's pray. Father, Your holiness is not... I feel the cheapness of my own words describing Your holiness. Who could possibly stand before You and what is man that You are even mindful of him when we look up at the stars? You are the God that takes what is common and You make it beautiful for Your purposes. We don't want to be like Achan and miss out on all that you are doing because we just can't take our eyes off the shiny things. We ask that you would give us the undivided devotion. We ask that you would give us faith that moves beyond all of our circumstances and trust in a holy God that has nothing that can compare to him and no enemy that could stay his hand. I know there are many people that struggle to believe that you even care. I'm sure Rahab felt the same way.
But I ask that you would give them the joy that you gave her. The joy that you are a gracious, loving, and merciful God. And it's in your love and your care for us that is our only hope. Because who can stand before you in all of our imperfection? We thank you for Jesus and we ask that you would make us together as individuals and combined as a body, as a community, undivided in our devotion towards you. And we ask that you would give us faith that can move mountains in Rockwall, Rowlett, Heath, and in India. Because you are holy and you are uncommon in every way. We ask all of these things in your precious name. Amen.